0: We are going to be wrapping up James, this book of James. We've been studying through this now for a few months. And today we're going to be completing the book of James. And um, I pray that it's been as enriching for you as it has been for me. Uh, the, the joy of studying through the scriptures is a great joy indeed. And last week... Uh, we started in this section a needed reminder of prayer and the reason we pray and the reason why we need a need a reminder is james began his little letter in chapter one with a reminder to prayer and then he concludes here at the very end with a need for a a reminder to pray it's because prayer will keep us centered on god and on his ultimate will and plan for our lives like nothing else can When we we get before God and we pour our heart out before Him and we get before His Word and we take all of our cares and we cast them upon Him, He has a way of realigning our thinking, our priorities in accordance with His way of thinking and in accordance with His priorities. Because oftentimes we lack the ability to see, truthfully see, that God is good all the time. Especially when our earthly eyes are filled with tears of grief or anger. And so we pray. We ask God for wisdom to help us see more clearly when our vision gets blurred in life. And suffering and trials is a way of blurring our vision in life, is it not? Suffering and trials can blur our vision of God's plan and of His goodness, and especially his goodness and his plan toward us. We oftentimes get to the point where we think that perhaps God doesn't love us as affectionately as the scriptures inform us that he does indeed love us. And we start thinking wrongly about who God is and how God orchestrates the circumstances of our lives for that good, our good and his glory. And we get confused, our vision gets blurred, And so we definitely have a need for being reminded to pray, as James said in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, very eloquently. When we started chapter 5, James reminded us in the first six verses of the emptiness of making promises that the wealthy landowners and Perhaps trying to compromise to accommodate some of the struggles and strife that these believers were going through was futile indeed. He reminded these believers that the hoarding of the wealth that these landowners are doing against them one day will rise up as a witness against them. And in in essence, it's going to rise up as a witness against them demonstrating that their heart, their love was in wealth, not God, and thus the righteous judgment of God falls correctly where it needs to fall. One day, perfect justice will indeed come. As a matter of fact, James says that the justice and the judgment that was awaiting them, if they could only truly see it the way believers can see it, he said these wealthy would be weeping and howling for the miseries. And if you look in your text there, it says, which are coming upon them. Without question, they are coming. And that was, a, I believe, a precious reminder to the children and to the child of God who was suffering under the weightiness of poverty. These individuals were by no means lazy. They worked extremely hard. They were forced into the circumstances that they were in, And James is reminding them not to sell out, not to lose sight of the fact that they have a coming crown of righteousness that the Lord has promised to them. See chapter 1, verse 12. In the second section, here in chapter 5, when James is concluding, a second reminder is just the reminder that there's a need for patience. We especially live in a very... um, quick paced moving society we want things to happen immediately and i'm certain that these these believers were feeling the the grind of their lives they they were being um, some of whom were even being put to death as a result of the circumstances they were faced with and james's word to them was be patient be patient until the coming of the lord we saw there in verse 8 be patient And then he tells them to strengthen their hearts. The idea of strengthening their hearts was the idea of propping their hearts up, of propping the heart up with thinking what is true, which would then take us back to what he had previously been teaching in the course of his letter to them. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And then James obviously went on and he used Old Testament prophets and Job as an example of what suffering and patience looked like. And so we jumped over, if you remember, to Hebrews chapter 11, and we saw how many of the prophets were sawn in two. They were killed, put to death by the sword, destitute, sleeping outside. And James had the audacity, or I might say the Word of God had the audacity to say that their lives were blessed. We consider them blessed who endured such hardships. Do you remember when we looked at the word blessed and what that meant? Do you remember? Favorable circumstances. (laughs) The word of God was saying that the prophets who suffered greatly found themselves with favorable circumstances. And the only way I can make sense of that is that their circumstances gave them a platform upon which to declare the glory and the greatness of God. It's the only way I can think of that. I can't think of how any other way that would be a favorable circumstance. How about you? And so that, those are the crazy ways that we need to think. Have you ever read the New Testament, the 13 letters of Paul, and oftentimes thought, what made this man so crazy? Why did, He says things that are just seemingly outlandish. And I think what made Paul so crazy was that he had a crazy love for God because he understood something that all believers need to comprehend. That means get their, their arms around, to, to embrace, to take ownership of. Which is exactly what we were singing earlier today, is that Jesus paid it all. You're okay. Come what may, everything's going to be okay. So Paul would say something crazy like, to live is Christ, but To die? That's gain. Are you out of your mind? No, Paul was living for another city in which his true citizenship dwelt. You see the kind of thinking that we as believers, the Word of God is instructing us to possess. And this kind of thinking isn't radical. It's normative, biblical Christianity. Isn't that good to think about it that way? It's just what Christians do. It's what the Word of God calls us to do, and so God is at work in you to conform your life to those very purposes, to be people of the Word and to be known as people of the Word. And then lastly, as we began last week, James instructed these suffering saints against the making of empty promises, of making vows and saying oaths, which suffering people oftentimes are prone to do. He just says, hey, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't make any empty promises that you can't keep. Be a person of your word. Let that be how you are known and identified as, the person of the word. If you say it, do it. Be faithful 100%. And he said this in the context of knowing the horrible circumstances in which they were living. James wasn't unaware of that. As a matter of fact, we recognize that James knew that there were those who were very weak indeed, and they were suffering greatly. He said, there are some among you who are sick. He recognized that. And so he said, you need to call for the elders of the church. And this sickness here, as we pointed out last week, was the idea of a weakness or to be weak, and it originally had the idea of 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 a physical weariness. And that's why I kind of started taking the passage in the direction that we were taking it. That this sickness here, the best way to really uh, understand this word in the context of what James is talking about, is not he's not making mention of a head cold. These individuals were not new to head colds. They knew how to manage head colds. But what they were new to was the kind of persecution that they were undergoing and the weariness that has now come as a result of their new way of living life. And so there are some among you who are extremely wearied and worn out, which leads to a, an emotional weariness and a spiritual weariness. And it seems in the context that James is working through here, some of these believers are close to even giving up. Now I'm going to jump ahead briefly. I'm not going to go there on, my, on, the, on the overhead, but just if you have your word of, uh, the Word of God open... Notice the very end, the verses 19 and 20. We're going to get there, but I just want to bring this out in the, in the sense of its context so that you kind of see and feel a little bit more about what James is saying here, I believe. He said in 19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth... So as we work our way through this passage, it seems that the individuals here who are sick... Verse 14, and that that same reference gets made before, are individuals who are perhaps straying from truth, not in the sense of abandoning the gospel, but straying from truth in the sense that their thoughts are not lining up with the thoughts and the thinking of God with regard specifically to the trials and the persecution that they're enduring in life. Does that make sense? And one of the contextual clues that makes me think that is verse 20, where it says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, and thinking wrongly about trials, and then speaking wrongly about God in in view of the trials that we as believers go through, that's sin. And we're going to see that there's a need of repentance of that sin. So he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, it saves his what? Saves his soul. We're talking about the condition of a person's soul here. The healing that's going to be talked about in this context. And the prayer, the effective prayer that brings healing is going to be, is going to be bringing healing to a soul. It's going to be turning a sinner who's errant, who's errant in their ways of understanding how God is working in their life and perhaps speaking wrongly in the context in the community of the church. Is this our best life now? Is this the best that God has to offer for us? Look at us. Are we certain that we made the right decision when we heard Peter preach following Pentecost? When the 5,000 were added to their number that day, we were a part of that number, and now as as a result of that, look what it's led to. Are we certain that we made the right decision? Their souls are in turmoil. Their conditions have led them to be in a context where they're extremely wearied, and thus the word gets translated here, sick. And brothers and sisters, elders who can come and pray for them, can turn such a one away from the error of their way, from the error of their thinking, and their souls can be sozo, can be saved or delivered, which is one of the words we're going to see up here in our context that happens as a result of the faithful prayers. Are you following me? This is a very complex passage that we're working our way through here, and there are many varied interpretations with this. One of those varied interpretations as we get into this passage is the picking up off of just the English translation of the word sick. And so it's led many to believe that, you, see, anybody who's sick, just have the elders come and pray for them, or we're going to also see in the, in the rest of the context... In verse 16, even others can go and pray for you, and God will heal your sickness if the prayer that you offer is a prayer offered in faith. And so a lot of the Word of Faith movement, they want to put the emphasis on faith and the faithfulness of the one praying. And so if someone doesn't get healed, they like to sometimes articulate that they were lacking faith. It's not an issue with God. It's that they, the person who was praying, was simply lacking faith. And so they doubted, and James said in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, that if you doubt, you ought not to expect that you would receive anything from the Lord, right? That's what he says. Makes sense. And so this passage can be really construed in a way that brings, I think, spiritual harm to God's children. Because whenever God's children start wrongly believing that they lack faith, where does that lead them? It leads them to a place of depression. Because I know I love God. I love God with all my heart, so my strength. Why don't I have enough faith? If I just had enough faith, I could pray for this person and they would be healed of their cancer. Why is it not working, God? And it must be me. And this passage sometimes gets used wrongly as an exercise to demonstrate that God's willing to heal anybody of their physical sickness. You just have to have enough faith to make it so. And that's why it's important to be cautious when we walk through this passage and to go and look at some of the resources and what's the the root of the word and the meaning and how it's most often used, and then think about that within the context in which James is writing, the broader context of the entirety of his letter, so that we don't wrongly find ourselves thinking such thoughts. Nowhere in the scriptures are you ever going to see anywhere that the Bible promises that God will bring Earthly healing to anybody and everybody who asks. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't even heal everybody in his three years of ministry. He healed many, but then he would even leave towns and, were, and he would leave people unhealed. Because his purpose wasn't just one of bringing healing, his purpose was one of validating the truthfulness of God's word and that he was the promised Messiah. And so the message that he came with was being validated through Christ and the Holy Spirit through Christ with signs and wonders. But even Jesus did not heal everybody. But one of the things that is promised throughout the entirety of the Scriptures is that God will restore the wearied, sick, and soul when they turn back to him, when they repent of sin. That's one of the things that is guaranteed. As a matter of fact, 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many times? One time, two times, seventy times seven. Well, that's on a different passage, but every time, right? God is faithful. When we repent of sin, and this this clearly, the repentance, the confession of sin, the repentance of sin is clearly woven into our context. So, let's, um, let's pick up in verse 15, where we left off last week. And let's see how this ends up working itself out. So, in 14, is anyone among you sick? Then he must... Call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. James puts a greater emphasis here in 15 on prayer, as opposed to the medicinal oils that were rubbed on. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And again, as I made mention last, I had so many people come up to me last week, and they're like, hey, I, I still have some camphophonique." And then there were some others, what, what is that? What is camphophonique? I made mention of that as an oil that we used to have back when I was a kid. And any, any, any ouchie you got, you know, you cut your arm jumping over the barbed wire fence, and you scrap, you know, all the way, you just dump some camphophonique on it. Now, the, the oils, these medicinal oils that were being anointed on them, that were being rubbed into their bodies, was for their physical well-being and healing. But as we see here, James starts putting a greater emphasis on prayer. And the prayer, he says, verse 15, offered in faith. And so we don't want to downguard this idea of the offering of this prayer in faith. We need to be people of faith, don't we? And so who's offering the prayer? Well, we saw from verse 14 that the elders of the church could come over and they were to pray over him. And so the elders of the church, when they come and they pray, they need to be praying and be people of faith in their praying. Not so much faith in that do I believe in the gospel, Not, not that kind of faith, but faith in do we believe and do we hold to the truth that God's ways are always good. That what James said earlier in the letter, when we read that letter aloud as a church congregation, and he said that we need to consider it joy when we encounter various trials. Do we have faith to believe that that's true, that that's true of God? That that's how God actually wants us to live our life, how he wants us to control our minds and our thinking. So we pray in such a way, believing that that's true. Believing that that is true. So, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, this portion right here. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. I believe when you read this passage and you get to this portion of verse 15, that's the portion of verse 15 where you kind of go, hmm, that just doesn't seem to fit, right? That just seems to be a little bit off, but it seems to me that this portion of verse 15 is one of the most important contextual portions of James' writing that gives us indication as to what is happening in this passage. I just mentioned to you 1 John 1.9. Do I have that one here? Right there. It says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So we have here the truth that there is, one, a confession of sins. He's faithful and righteous to forgive. So after the confession of sins, there's a forgiveness of sins, and then after the confession and the forgiveness of sins, there's a cleansing, a restoring from unrighteousness, from the very sin that we confessed and turned from. Okay. So when you go back to 5.15 in this latter portion, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It seems to me that what clearly is implied in what James is saying here is that there was a confession. So when the elders came and they're offering prayer over the one who was sick, it says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. It seems that there would have been clearly a confession of sins that took place before there was what? Before there was a forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.9, there's confession, then there's forgiveness, and then there's cleansing. And so one of the things that this lets us know in the context is that the individual over whom the elders are praying is not a passive partner in the process. This isn't just the elder showing up. And here's some sick man laying there on his complete deathbed without any words to say at all. And the elders just pray a faithful prayer over him. And then he immediately gets well and is restored and, and you know, hops up and he's leaping and dancing and praising God. As John did and Peter when they were making their way early in Acts to the house of prayer. This The individual involved clearly seems to be an active agent because If he, here's the individual, has committed sins, which clearly, in the context, there is a committing of sins. They're doubting the goodness of God. They are doubting God, and so they ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. So there's a confession of sins. It seems from the individual to whom the elders go to pray. So it would seem to me the elders show up and have conversation with this individual right here. The elders show up and have conversation with he or she, whoever it may be. In, this, in that context, I'm sure they went from, more than, from house to house or from, from tent to tent or from lean-to to lean-to, however it was in their, in their day. As the elders were going from place to place, dealing with one person after the other who was wearied unto, a, unto sickness, their souls were wearied, they were depressed, they were doubting the goodness of God. The elders probably went to this individual and had good conversation. Why are you doubting the truth of God's Word? Why are you doubting the previous truth that we've that we've seen from our brother James? That God indeed causes things to work together for good in your life. And that's why he says you need to consider it joy when you encounter these various trials. Because God's producing an endurance in you that will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verses 5 through 8. Verse 12, you persevere all the way to the end, you will receive a crown of life that was promised by the Lord. Dear brother or sister, the adversary is trying to steal, kill, and destroy your life. He's the father of lies. He's deceiving. He's trying to deceive your mind into thinking that God's not good, and he doesn't love you the way that you heard Peter pronouncing that he truly did. And so it seems the elders are having conversation with said individual who did indeed commit some sins, thus they're as wearied as they are, and it says they will be forgiven. And so in order to get to forgiveness, there's confession, and so there's an active part with the individuals to whom they go, to whom they anoint with some oils, it's not to say that their bodies aren't indeed physically wearied and weak or maybe banged up from whatever it was they were doing. And so there's some anointment of oils, and I was going to read the passage here from um, Luke 10. The Good Samaritan, he bandaged up the man's wounds, what? Pouring oil and wine on them, right? So there were medicinal oils back in the day, and even, I don't know if he poured the wine on him or just put it down his throat. It might have been maybe both, I don't know. But either way, we see that, there's, that the anointing of oils was for the mending up of bodies that had been beaten and were wearied. And so when we get to James, it seems that this individual has confessed their sins. Yes, I've been thinking wrongly about God and his love for me, and his plan for me, and the plan of suffering in my life. I've been thinking wrong about that and speaking wrongly about that with others within the context of our Christian community. And it's led them, perhaps, to even doubt the goodness of God. And that's one of the ways that suffering blurs our vision about who God is and how we relate to him. And so there would be confession that's followed by forgiveness and then a cleansing. And so when we get over here and he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. This individual right here has confessed. God is forgiven. And then after that, what is there? There's a cleansing. God holds that against them no more. Okay, so we, I think that that's one of the contextual bright spots in this difficult text in understanding how and what James is saying. So the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. So this word restored here, which I'm now digging for in my notes, is the Greek word sozo, which is a word in the Greek which simply means to save or to deliver. Okay? It's a word for saving or delivering. I don't know if I put that one in here. Let me see. Went back there. Nope. But I'm going to get to this one here in just a second. I didn't put that one in there, but... This word right here for restore is the word sozo, to save, to deliver. The prayer that's offered in faith, these elders are praying. They believe that God's allowance of these difficult trials is indeed for their spiritual good. And they're encouraging this weakened brother or sister to believe the same. And that prayer that's offered without doubting has led them to confession, forgiveness, and restoration, we see here at the end. And it will be a deliverance, a saving of the one who is sick. And so when we got down to verse 20, notice, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will, there it is, save his soul from death. That's not to be taken that... This brother or sister may lose their salvation. No, save the soul from death. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to the, dark, the darkness of wrong thinking and wrong reasoning, which leads to great depression oftentimes within anybody's life. So there's a restoring and delivering, a saving from that sort of death in the believer's life, and it will res- indeed restore the one and we see down here towards the end of 15 that it seems that it has brought restoration to him because if they've com- if they confess their sins God has forgiven them right here and we know that God restores those whom he forgives are you following me so far this did I tell you this was a difficult passage and this is a passage that gets used I think wrongly most oftentimes. And so perhaps you're looking at it in this way for maybe the first time, and you're kind of thinking, um, this seems a little bit odd. I haven't heard it preached this way before. And so I'm going to say what I often say, which is what? Be like the Bereans. I don't care who you listen to, please. Everybody you listen to, go back to the Scriptures. Study. And let me tell you, this passage requires study. This isn't a flyover passage. This isn't one where you just read it, fly over it, and go, got it. <laughs> no, no, no. No, if you want to be like a Brian on this passage, you're going to have to do some labor. You're going to have to get out your spade, and you're going to have to do some digging, like you see I've done. It's what you're going to have to do. So, but I'm encouraging you to do that. We want everybody in our church to have spades and to dig. Why? Because we want you to taste and see that God is good. Amen. We want you to taste and see that God is good. Especially in the context of your trials and suffering. When it's hardest to taste it and see it. Just like these brothers and sisters were enduring themselves. You following me? Okay. I've got one more piece I want to show to you here in verse 15. It's this word right here. Raise him up. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. I'm not going to go over all that again. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So out of the um, this Greek lexicon here, luau nida, <coughs> this word translated, this verb translated here, raise him up, in this context is a Figurative extension of this meaning, of this word, to cause to stand up. To cause to stand up. To restore a person to health and vigor. Somewhat equivalent to the English idiom, to get him on his feet again. And it seems to me that that English idiom fits really well in the context in which James is talking about here. It's about raising that wearied soul back up, getting him on his feet again and thinking rightly about who God is and the goodness of God in his life and the love of God over his life. Now, James doesn't say how long that might take, I mean, the good Samaritan, the man that he bandaged up, it probably, well, I don't know, let's say maybe it took him a week to kind of get over some of his physical wounds and the weariness of soul that he experienced. We don't know exactly how long it takes to get them raised up, but what's one of the things that we know definitively? That when there's confession of sin, of wrong thinking, eventually the darkness and the sorrow of soul will vanish and will vanquished, be vanquished by the truth of God's word. And in their context, perhaps the brother tweaked his knee, I don't know. But God will raise this person back up. And they will be stronger moving forward in their walk of faith with the Lord, in their walk of faith in the community of the church in which they're living. And hopefully, they will learn to what? Not only think rightly, but speak rightly with regard to the goodness of God in the context of suffering and trials in their life. So that they can then be what? An encouragement to the body of Christ. To do the same. Are you following me? This is a difficult passage. I didn't get a lot of affirmation there, but I'm praying that you are. Okay. Now, one of the things that we see moving on um, into verse 16, it's like James is now going to just basically say to everybody, listen, in light of this, (laughs) you need to stay prayed up and confessed up. As well notice 16 therefore confess your sins to one another just like the brother that we were talking about in 15 like I said there was a confession of sins it was kind of implied in 15 we see here in 16 it becomes more explicit versus implicit that there needs to be a confession of sins therefore you too you need to do what this brother or sister did that called for the elders to come to that came to them Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be raised up. So that you won't find yourself, verse 20, having darkness of soul, needing your soul saved from the error of your way, from the error of your thinking. And so what we also see here is the blessedness of the community of the body of Christ. I don't know. It doesn't say. We know that there were a plurality of elders because it said, call for the elders of the church. There was, there was a plurality of elders within the church. We don't know how many, but there was at least more than one. But let's say there was four. I don't know. There was perhaps thousands of these brothers and sisters who were dispersed due to the Persecution. Can you see the, 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 the amount of time that it would have taken for the elders to make their way to every single place and go through the same process? James is saying basically to the body of Christ, listen, you have a place of ministry for one another within your own lives in the same context of saving each other's soul from going away in error and thinking wrongly about God and His purpose for trials in your life. So confess your sins to one another. You get with someone, you say, Matt, man, I'm struggling, brother. I'm having a hard time to see what these elders are saying, that this is somehow for my spiritual good. I'm not feeling really good about this. How about you? And hopefully Matt's going to be thinking rightly to say, "I, I, I have a hard time seeing it too, brother. But we are people of faith. We live by faith, not by sight. And we believe the testimony of the apostles who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. They saw him alive from the dead. And they've gone out, and they're preaching that message, and it came to us too. Let's stay faithful to that message. We didn't see Jesus in the flesh after raising from the dead again, but they did, and we have that testimony made more sure in our thinking and that our hearts were knit together with that gospel, and God saved us. And so we confess our sins to one another, and it might be that sin or it might be another kind of sin. It could be any kind of sin, plural, a need to confess your sins to one another, which, if you think about it, it's one of the hardest things that any Christian has to contemplate in the context of biblical community, and one of the reasons why a lot of Christians prefer not to get into biblical community. Things like this, dry the spit up in our mouth quickly. Because we want everybody to think that we've got it all together and everything's going great all the time and that we never sin. And I know for a fact that every single one of you have probably felt felt that and thought that before because I have. And we're just alike. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm a person made of flesh just like you. Same temptations? Yep. Yep. Confessing our sins to one another, oftentimes we wrongly think that that's an admission of our weakness. And I want to encourage all of us in this process to think differently about this. I want us to recognize that the confession of sins to one another is one of the greatest signs of strength for a believer that there ever could be. They so love the Lord... They do not want to sully Christ's name and reputation. And so they're looking for genuine accountability with another brother or sister to say, help me, I'm being tempted. And more than likely, the brother or sister turns around and says, I know what you're saying, I've been right there with you, let's help each other. It's one of the surest signs of strengths within your soul is that you care more about the glory of God than your own personal reputation. You following me? So we got to get over this. At Gene's Bible, we want to create a a biblical community within our life group structures where we can actually do this. And we are doing this. And we encourage people to do this. And perhaps it takes you a couple of meetings to get there. Perhaps it takes you a year to get there. But we want to encourage people to get to that place of strength where they care more about The the name and the reputation and the renown of God and their personal testimonies and their own personal security and their own reputations. So we are called to confess sins to one another and to pray for one another so that we may be healed. We don't want to become this person. We don't want to get so far down in our soul and our spiritual life and our thinking wrongly about God that we become this person right here. We just need to be quick to confess God forgives and, and heals from that. And, by the way, just so you, James says, just so you know, the effective prayer of a righteous man does accomplish much. You're, you're not just spitting in the wind. Jesus said, I'd never leave you or forsake you. God's, he is there with you. And the effective prayer of righteous people does avail much. Amen? And so then he gives the example of one of the prophets of the effectiveness of such prayer. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit." Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's cut out from the same cloth. He had the same sin nature that needed redeeming. Same capacity for doubt. Faced trials, suffered like the rest of all people. He prayed earnestly, and God responded to his prayer. Now, it's interesting that James used this particular example in the particular context in which he's writing think about the mental imagery that James has just painted on the canvas of our minds by reading this section let me read it again and and get this mental image on the canvas of your mind elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months, can you try to get there and see that in your mind? In Oklahoma here, we just went through a patch, of was it was about a month, where we didn't have rain, and then the last few days or so we've gotten some rain. And if you're like me, you don't, ever, you don't water your grass because you're trying to save pennies. And also, then I don't have to cut it. It stops growing. So it's a, a double entendre that's glorious. But if you go out and you look at your yard, what do you see after just a month of no rain? Brown grass? What's the dirt look like? It starts pulling away from the concrete. It starts separating in the yard in places. Have you been there? Have you ever seen that? So, it hasn't rained on the earth for three and a half years. It's a wearied, parched land. But then he prayed again, the sky poured rain The earth produced its fruit. And it seems, and I may be stretching a little bit here, but it seems that this perfectly illustrates what God wants to do for the parched, lifeless, wearied souls with effective prayer as well, who potentially have fallen prey to their own wrong thinking that God no longer cares about them, and so their souls start getting kind of parched up, and they're so spiritually malnourished that they have such little faith and spiritual life within them that they call for the elders to come and be like Elijah, one who can pray earnestly and effectively because the effective prayers of righteous saints can avail much and through the labor of the elders and or other brothers and sisters in the lives of believers with such parched, wearied souls, and there's forgiveness, thus confession, thus healing. The beautiful rains of God's Spirit come pouring back into our soul again, and we believe. I don't know. I don't know if that's how James was intending to use Elijah in this context or not, but I sure found it somewhat intriguing. Perhaps you do as well. But one of the things we know for certain is that God takes parched, wearied souls, and when they repent and confess and turn, he will bring a restoration. Amen? We do know that. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produced its fruit. God wants you and I to be fruitful. And remember, we need to keep in mind that even Paul in Ephesians 6.11 tells us the reason why we put on the armor of God is that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We have to be reminded that the devil has schemes, and those schemes are directly aimed against us as God's children. When you took the name of Christ and you went public and got baptized and were buried and raised to walk in newness of life the schemes of the devil are now out to take you out take you down steal, kill, and destroy. Don't forget that every single day. And then in conclusion where I kind of went to early on which I think was part of the contextual understanding of what James is talking about he says look 19 my brethren let's read this again if any among you strays from the truth. And it seems that the straying from the truth here, again, goes back to our previous context, even the broader context of James' letter, the overarching truth of James' letter. You stray from that. And one turns him back. They help open their eyes to see differently, A turning him back that's oftentimes a kind of like a, a visual of what repentance kind of looks like a turning away from going one way that was sinful and wrong and if you can be a part of helping turn someone away from that and turn them back to truth from which they were straying let let that person know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul dealing with soul wounds here from death and will cover a multitude of sins sounds like James is saying there needs to be active body life the encouragement of one another within the context of Christ church towards thinking godward thoughts correctly are you following this and then he just ends it's like that's it it. And brothers and sisters, I believe that this context in which James is writing here today, though our circumstances are different, if you ever get to a place where your soul is so wearied by your circumstances in life, and listen, as a pastor, I've got to deal with a lot of people who've had very difficult circumstances in their lives, and I can tell you firsthand that what I'm saying is probably happening with these people. I've seen it happen with brothers and sisters today they get so discouraged they f- they get to the place where they can no longer see that God actually and genuinely loves them and it takes a lot of labor to help that brother and sister but if you can help turn one from the error of his way you're saving their soul i've got a really good friend i've seen this happen to Ten years ago, curse God and die. Today, God is good. Like I said, James didn't say how long that might take. But God is faithful. God's the one that's at work in you, willing to work for his good pleasure. And so we need one another, brothers and sisters. Amen? Well, I think I'm long on my time, so how about we pray?